What's up, everyone? Welcome to another lovely episode of the Curious Kid Podcast. My name is Colapo, and I'm your host. If you're joining us for the first time, Curious Kid Podcast is a show where I meet with amazing founders, ecosystem builders, VCs, policy makers, and everyone working to make entrepreneurship thrive in Africa. And this episode features Francis Sonny, who is a principal at Magic Fund. And Magic Fund is a $30 million early stage venture capital fund built by founders for founders. The fund backs founders solving daunting challenges across the globe at the earliest stages, which can be pre-seed and seed stages. And the fund has backed over 100 plus tech startups including Mono, Oxygen, and many more. Uh, Francis, it's an honor to have you today on Curious K Podcast. Thank you for joining uh, the, us. The pleasure is all mine. The pleasure is all mine. The pleasure is all mine. Super excited. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm happy we're finally doing this. So how are yeah. you doing today? I'm okay. I'm okay. It's Friday. It's Friday. Um, it's been a... It's been a it's been a good Friday in the sense that it's been a slow day, which Fridays are supposed to be, you know, before the weekend. Um, but when, you know, you got your to-do list for the week and you're like, ah, you know, it's not complete yet and the day is slow, you know, you're just struggling to just try to get it over the line so you can have a free week, a weekend with a free mind. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Thank it's, uh, it's a beautiful day here in Lagos. I think the weather kind of, I mean, it looks like it's going to rain, but okay. all the same, I think it's been it's been cool. So yeah. I mean, we're just looking forward to to an amazing weekend. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. How's the how's the fall life? I I, I think it's getting any better. Yes, uh, it is. I think um, it's getting better. I mean, you can easily drive into a, into into a gas station and get four. Okay, uh, but in some cases, I mean, you still see um guy selling black market and i'm like yeah. wow <laughs> what, what is happening you guys don't want this to, to, to set food down <laughs> i mean who, who, who in the real sense would still want to you know By, patronize you guys yeah but they're still hanging out in some of those you know, it is what it is it, the lagos grind and us last uh, it is it is it is all right, yeah. So, so let's get into it, Francis. Uh, can, can can you walk us through your journey, uh, getting into the innovation ecosystem? Uh, and I know you had like a stint, a role at CC Up. Uh, it would be great if if you just tell us about that. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I always like to. Uh, I, I I always use this intro format whenever I make an introduction. I think I'm getting like I say the same things over and over again. So. I always like to begin this journey in college because that's really where, you know, everything began. So um, in college, when I came to my first year in college, I made a kind of a vow to myself that I was going to try to go through college without having to collect allowance from my parents. Right. So obviously, they still paid my school fares, you know, still got food and all of those things from home. Um, you know, but I wanted to be able to go through college without having to, you know, get an allowance from home. And that meant that I needed to find a way to make money, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so the journey started with looking for a way to make money very early on. Um, and I ran about five, I was, I was, I was listing it out to a friend the other day. I ran about five or six businesses when I was in college, uh, which was very interesting uh, because it gives, gave me a lot of perspectives 
around, you know, just most of them were small businesses, um, but, you know, helped me understand very early on, you know, the, the concept of value creation, you know, the importance to have some sort of uniqueness or advantage for you to be able to build a good business, you know, the elements of running a good business, regardless of the scale that it's at, right? Um, so I did, you know, a printing business, I did an events planning business, I did an education business, I opened a restaurant at some point, I did just, just different that I could do to make money, you know, I did it back in school. And I always thought I was going to be an entrepreneur, you know, I always thought I would leave school and just continue on that path. Um, but then in my final year in college, um, something changed and I did a couple of events where I realized that my strengths and my fulfillment, you know, were more focused on helping people to become better versions of themselves and helping people to build better businesses and better enterprises, right? Um, so at the end of college, I switched focus and I went into management consulting because that's one of the best ways for you to learn how to be able to support entrepreneurs to build businesses, right? Um, so I did management consulting for two years, which was a really, really important, you know, part of my career because I learned the rudiments and fundamentals from a technical standpoint of creation, distributing value, and just running an enterprise. Um, while I was doing that, I was also the third employee at a fintech, a small fintech um, back then that I helped to grow by a thousand percent within 18 months. Um, so I got a lot of operational experience doing that as well. And after two years of doing both of these things, I then decided that, um, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't necessarily focused on technology and I wanted to learn, like, I just, I, I had some encounters that helped me to understand that technology was the future. Mm. And I wanted to be able to get capacity to be able to support technology entrepreneurs, right? Um, so I was, I was offered a partnership position at the management consulting firm that I was at, a junior partnership position. Um, but I was like, oh, no, like, I'm just going to go. I literally went into Lagos. Um, I found all of, I went to look for all of the tech innovation hubs. I applied to all of them. And I told them that I was ready to work for free <laughs> just so that I could get into the ecosystem. Wow, right? um, uh, And by chance, actually, when I... CCUB. Um, I had sent emails, so I sent emails to everybody, but CCUB never got back to me, but Growth Capital did, which was, you know, CCUB's fund. And I had a conversation with Tunji of Growth Capital, and Tunji liked me, and he just took me upstairs to meet with Boston. So when I went to, you know, CCUB, the goal was not to, you know, work with CCUB, but was to speak with Growth Capital. Um, but because just by chance, um, I spoke with Boston, spoke with HR that same day, did my interview that same day. And two weeks later, you know, I got into CCUB, um, which was very interesting because I, I guess they didn't get in for free, right? Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah no. Like, <laughs> yeah, to be honest, when I had the conversation with Tom, who was the head of HR, I was like, yo, like, you know, I really want to do this. You know, I don't care. Like, I had some money saved up. So I was like, I don't really care. I just really want to be able to come into the tech ecosystem. So I'm happy to work for free. And she was like, no, we don't like our people to, you know, do multiple things. So we'll pay you, you know. It's not too much, but at least we'll pay you. And, you know, it was back then, 2017. I was like, okay, okay. I'll just work for free, but I'm getting something. So not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad at all. Um, Yeah, but that was was, was exciting periods of my life, you know, um, being at CCR. I joined CCUB as an analyst, um, but then, you know, rose up the ranks quite quickly. Um, so also then managed accelerator programs, first managed a few accelerator programs, um, called one called Next Economy with the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs um, in the Netherlands, which was really good. And then, you know, 
over time went to, to manage the Facebook accelerator and Airbus accelerators and, you know, lead the entire acceleration team across the continent. So, you know, that's what, you know, the journey and the background, um, you know, kind of looked like. Amazing, amazing story right there. Yeah, so, I mean, in, in running these programs, uh, what, what was the experience like working with founders, right? Because you're working with founders at different stages uh, with different expectations. What, what was like, what, what stood out for you, I mean, during that time in terms of your engagement with, with startup founders? Yeah, you know, to be honest, um, now that I'm on the VC side of things, you know, I think about those times quite fondly, mm. but... I also think about those, you know, there are two different, you know, industries. Um, and something that a conversation I've been having with a lot of people in the ecosystem, especially people in the innovation sector, has been how the 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 focus, the type of entrepreneurs that incubation programs, accelerator programs, and similar programs focus on is a different category of entrepreneurs that, you know, VCs or some other type of financiers will focus on. And I don't think there's enough understanding of the difference and that, you know, expectations and outcomes are being set to match that difference. Um, but to focus on that, that experience, you know, the, the thing about incubation programs and acceleration programs is that you most likely attract um, either first-time entrepreneurs, right, or entrepreneurs that do not have certain privileges, right? Um, so it's either a first-time entrepreneur who's, you know, being in some other industry and is trying to build a technology business or an entrepreneur who's been in tech, but, you know, maybe they didn't school abroad, right? Or, you know, they don't have certain networks. So they are unable to get access to certain resources that they can use to accelerate their businesses because a lot of the things that, you know, incubation programs and accelerator programs do for these entrepreneurs is education. It's opening up access to the networks, right? It's supporting them in building their business acumen, right? And what you will find is that a different category of entrepreneurs that would most likely not go to incubation programs or accelerator programs would be entrepreneurs who are privileged and have some sort of access or they have some sort of, you know, experience working at, you know, big tech companies or they have access to networks that they can use to get resources that they can use to more or less buffer the downsides that they don't have. Um, so to answer your question more directly, it was really, really good experience because it helped me to understand how to work with first-time entrepreneurs. Um, it helped me to be able to, because it's a much harder task, working mm. with someone who's never worked in tech or someone who's never built a large-scale business before because they're literally learning everything as they go, especially if you then add on top of that, the fact that they're not privileged and the fact that they don't have access to certain networks. So they have to go the extra mile to be able to build a really good business, right? Um, so I would say, like, just being able to go through that process, I, I think for me, the challenge I usually have is that the expectation at that point is people expect incubation programs to have the same, um, you know, success rates as a VC-funded company or something like that. But it's different because, you know, the, 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 the category and the caliber of entrepreneurs are different, right? So it's understandable if the success rates are lower there, but it does not mean that, you know, those programs are not important. Because now mm -hmm. I look five years later, a lot of the entrepreneurs back then whose businesses didn't eventually, you know, do really well. One of them is raising a $10 million Series A currently. A couple of them have raised multi-million dollar rounds recently that I know of and that I, those were people that I worked with back then. And I'm looking at it now and I'm saying, in many cases, it's not the business that they were working on back then that they, that they eventually, you know, succeeded with, right? 
Um, and it's just the way it is. It's just the way these things happen. So I think just being conscious of the dynamics is really important. Um, but that period of my career, learning and learning how to support, you know, entrepreneurs at the earlier stages of their career and helping them get to the point where they could eventually then run the business on their own was incredibly exciting. Yeah, amazing. So, so what, how did your transition to like VC role, how did that happen? Was that like a conscious effort that, okay, now it's time for me to switch gears? To be honest, that's a really interesting question because it wasn't a conscious effort. It was almost coincidental. Um, so when I, you know, planned my career uh, back, you know, when I was, again, I constantly review it. Um, but, you know, uh, in 2019, 2020, you know, before 2021, when I was thinking about it, the part I was thinking of was, okay, um, I'm working at CCR. At some point, I was focused on Nigeria, but eventually at CCR grew to become one of the largest innovation centers on the continent. It meant that I got to work with entrepreneurs across the entire continent. Um, and I'm always someone who's always, you know, always striving for more. So the next phase for me was going to be a global opportunity. You know, something that allowed me to work outside of the African continent, you know, understand Latin America, understand the U.S. market, understand the Asian market. So that was what I was thinking of. And the way I thought about it back then was, oh, I was going to go either to Europe or I was going to go to the U.S. and work at somewhere like YC or Plug and Play or some global accelerator or the innovation arm of some global company. Right. Um, so that was the thinking. Um, but eventually, just like coincidentally, by the time... Um, a friend of mine introduced me to Goke, who um, at a point, you know, where we met, Magic had just, you know, they were just, you know, the fund one, we're just finishing investing, investment as a small vehicle, and they were now raising this multi-million dollar vehicle, and they were like, oh, you know, this is what we're trying to do. We want to be able to build this at this stage and execute this at this stage, and it was going to be global, Right. Um, and I got recommended to go, okay, and we had a conversation and there was a lot of alignment. And I was like, okay, this is coming about, because I always thought I would get to the VC point about like, you know, five years from now, um, as at 2021. Um, so it was like five to seven years earlier than I expected. Um, but it's been incredible. I'm really glad I took that leap because I had some options and the alternative would have been to, you know, go the other parts that I thought was going to be um, the better part, which is working with a global accelerator. Um, but the switch to the VC side of things has just given me a whole different perspective because now I have an experience from an operator standpoint. I have experience from working with entrepreneurs from an incubation and accelerator and you know, innovation design standpoint. But I also now have experience from a VC standpoint, right? Um, which, you know, is just really good perspective. Best of both worlds, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you get what I mean. So t- tell us about your role at Magic Fund and if you can go down a bit and tell us about like the, the fund's investment thesis as well. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So um, I joined Magic to essentially, you know, manage the back office alongside the operating partner. So um, my day-to-day um, is heavily focused on, you know, because we have a very unique fund, um, most funds that you have, especially at the fund size that we're at, which is sub 50 million, you would typically have, you know, two to five partners at the most. Um, but in Magic, we have, you know, more than 12 partners globally, right? And all of our partners are full-time founders, right? Which is, you know, come to the thesis and, you know, I explain why, you know, we, we, we approach it with that strategy and why it's worked really well. 
But what that means is because all of the partners are not full-time on the fund, it means that there needs to be an efficient back office that is able to enable the partners to do great work, right? So my entire mandate and work day in, day out is to build an efficient back office team and back office process and procedure and organization that ensures that across all of the markets that we operate in, we're able to perform efficiently, right? Uh, from a process standpoint and, and the like. Um, however, because of my background in the ecosystem as well, it also means that I also um, sit on the African investment team as well. So I support um, the African um, general partners who making investments and very quite active in the deal making process. Um, so I do a lot of, you know, investment work alongside, um, you know, the ops work that takes most of my time. Uh, in terms of the thesis, um, the thesis is very simple. And, I've, you know, it's also one of the, you know, most um, unique thesis when you think about it. And something that's coming more popular nowadays. And it's simply, be, simply that at the earlier stages of a founder building a company, um, mm. the pre-seed stage where you're trying to find product market suites, um, some of the most relevant people who will be able to, you know, help you think through the hardest questions, you know, who will be able to help you do the other things like, you know, figuring out who to hire, figuring out your product strategy, you know, figuring out how to fundraise, how to structure your fundraise, what kind of investors to bring in, you know, all of these different complexities. The most positive, some of the most, you know, valuable people to help you with that process are other founders who have gone through that process themselves, especially if they're even multiple time founders because they've done this over and over again. And they're not speaking to you from a, um, you know, from a textbook standpoint. They're coming to you from an empathetic standpoint. Not just from an understanding of the process, but they're also able to empathize with, you know, the dynamics that is just different for everyone, right? So the entire model of magic is we have really great partners who are all multiple-time founders and operators, meaning that they've, you know, a lot of them have run multiple companies and exited multiple companies, Right. To, to give an example, so um, our lead partner in Southeast Asia is Andra Quick, and he's the CEO of Payfers, which is um, likely going to be a unicorn this year, and he's the largest you know, mobile bank in Southeast Asia. So this is someone who has built a whole unicorn from the ground up, right? He's going to understand a thing or two about how to build a business, especially <laughs> yeah. at the stages, <laughs> all right? Our partner in Latin America, similar thing, same thing in the US, same thing in Europe, same thing in Africa. You know, all of our partners are operators who have been through the process. And we believe that at that early stage, having these people who understand and have gone through that process be with you, be on your cap table and support you through the earlier stages is incredibly valuable to founders. So at Magic, it's a collective. We even like to position ourselves more as a collective because we're more, you know, we're, we're in the founder's corner because we are founders, right? So it's a collective that is designed, that is built by founders and is designed to find some of the very best founders out there across the world and support them, right? The other unique thing that I always like to point out is that we're local, right? So we're one of the very few global funds where... The partners are local. So in most cases, what you usually have is a new fund. A fund wants to set up and they'll go find, you know, some investment professional or some somebody in the ecosystem, you know, to lead the local operations. But in our case, the partners are people who have built businesses in these different ecosystems, if you get what I mean, right? So they understand things from a local standpoint. They understand the local context. They understand the local dynamics. 
And that helps with finding the companies. It helps with evaluating the companies and just the all-round um, process around, you know, investing. So can you tell us about some investments? Have you made investment in Nigeria or maybe other countries in Africa? Oh, no, absolutely. So with our fund one, we invested in about, you know, 13 companies um, across the continent. Last year, we did nine deals across the continent. This year, we've done two so far. Um, so we're very active, you know, very active on the continent. Um, we absolutely love all of the companies we've invested in, <laughs> right? So um, they are hardly any favorites because all of them are building incredible businesses and they're all amazing, you know, founders. Um, but to give you an example, so we invested in Bamboo at one of the earlier stages. We're investors in Money Africa, which is, you know, one of the ones we did last year. You know, there's Brass, which is, you know, the digital um, bank, there's Carrots, there's Instant Rad, you know, um, we invested recently in Clamp, which is which recently announced and they focused on um, BNPL, right? Um, so these are some, some of the investments we've done across, uh, just to give a sense, folks a sense of the kind of, folk, while we are sector agnostic, we try to, you know, focus on certain um, sectors, right? We have preference for certain sectors. But if we see a really great deal, a really great founder, a really great company outside of those sectors, we're going to invest in them. But some of the key sectors we focus on, obviously, fintech is huge um, right. globally, right? So um, there's a really good focus on fintech. But we also invest heavily in health tech as well, um, healthcare as well. But also, you know, B2B software tools or enterprise tools, because especially as digitization increases across the continent, those would continue to, you know, play a very important role in the, you know, just in the general growth of um, enterprises across the continent. So, for instance, from an enterprise standpoint, there's Vendis, which we invested in, which, you know, allows restaurants to be able to get their produce very easily. And they've grown amazingly over the past year. They start Christian's Group, which on the other hand is, uh, their beauty, which is now called Order. Um, but they're building software for restaurants to be able to manage their processes, right? Um, and, you know, you just have different companies across across that range. So fintech, healthcare, you know, um, B2B SaaS. We do some direct-to-consumer product um, investments as well. But there's also blockchain, which we've started investing in heavily across the continent, right? Um, so those are, like, some of the very core folk, um, sectors we focus on. But we definitely do investments outside of these sectors so so what's your typical check size for these deals and the deal structure uh, i mean uh, there's a lot of conversation around safe notes convertible notes uh do you just go for price ground directly and i mean w- w- i mean to be great to, to just hear how that flows from your hand no absolutely so our typical check size our preferred check size is usually around 150k um, but you know you have to be malleable sometimes so sometimes that means you have to go down to 800k um, um, but our preference is usually around 150k to 250k um, and we usually come in very early right which also you know speaks to the second point you know from a th- st- standpoint of you know what instruments do you use because we're coming in very early we're coming in as one of the very first checks in um, we'll move, in many cases we're doing safes right except in a situation where the company is set up the round such that they're doing convertibles um, I don't necessarily have an issue with saves, especially when it's very early on. I think the challenge is when folks are doing two things. First is folks are doing 
um, high volume seed rounds, so $5 million seed rounds or $7 million seed rounds on safes, right? Number two is when they are doing those seed rounds um, and they're doing them with extensions, which essentially means that, you know, you raise $1 million at $10 million, and then after you raise $1 million at $10 million, you then proceed to, you know, raise the next two million, um, you know, maybe the next two million at 15 million. Um, and then maybe you then do another one at 30 million. And then the next one, you know, is like at, you know, 40 million. So when you just stack these saves on top of each other, right? Um, they then from a conversion standpoint, the clauses in there, it just becomes quite messy. So my mm. advice to founders is always that, you know, if you're going to do a large seed round particularly, right? If it's like above two million thereabouts, you want to, you know, try to do a price round, right? Or you want to make sure that you don't have too many extensions, you know, so there are not multiple conversion times. Interesting, interesting insight right there. Yeah. And um, and w- w- what range of equity do you aim for? I mean, uh, for price rounds? Yeah, so 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 our, our focus, you know, is on you know supporting founders really early on. So it means that we're very price sensitive, right? Um, so it means that we usually try to come in at you know sub ten million dollar rounds. Um, again, obviously, sometimes you have to make exceptions, especially when the company is really great. Um, but from a strategy standpoint, to try to you know come in at sub ten million dollar rounds. Um, our equity ownership target is usually somewhere between 2 to 7%, right? It's a broad range, so it depends on how early we're coming into the company. So if we're coming in really early and, you know, doing a 200K or 250K check, you know, it can go to the upper band. But if it's, you know, if we're coming in later, we're doing a smaller check, then it's on the lower band, right? But we should be sure about, you know, um, yeah. Great. Uh, so, so most of your deals, right? Uh, because you mentioned uh, one of your founders in Southeast Asia. I mean, you've talked about some of the investments you've made across Africa. So, how do you source your deals? Uh, mostly, how does it work? Yeah, no, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, whatever founders listening who want to reach out, um, there are multiple ways, right? So, I'll say how we source deals, but also you know give advice to founders who are trying to raise money either from Magic or other VCs and some of the very best ways to have a high conversion when you're raising. Um, I'll put the, the deal flow our deal flow into a couple of buckets, right? Okay. The first bucket and, you know, the one that is usually the most highest quality is direct referrals um, from our GPs or direct inbounds to GPs. So what, so what means, percentage is that? Can you can you? That's really that high percentage. It's just okay. even across the across the venture industry, deals that someone introduced to a partner or to someone at the firm. So it doesn't have to be a partner to someone at the firm directly. So that means maybe a co-investor or someone in the ecosystem, or you know someone like just someone in a, those working as, at a startup or someone that has a direct contact you know with the investor. That's usually a high percentage because you know they are then there are gauges you can use. So the referral, the, the the strength of that referral matters, and it also means that if the if the refer, person referring the company is a high quality person, the founders are likely to be high quality, right? Uh, so I would say that's you know one of the biggest ways. And what that means is that you either find like just find anybody at the firm. And then you find someone who knows that person and you get that person to introduce you to that person, right? Um, it usually has a much higher conversion 
than you know a cold outreach mm-hmm. um, it is not to say a cold outreach doesn't work right um but to be honest just because i've been on both sides of the of the spectrum as well um companies that come from direct referrals are usually of a higher quality than companies that do cold because mm-hmm. people who are referring you a company they want to keep their reputation as you know they are referring good founders to you so there's a natural filtering mechanism that has been done, especially if those people are VCs or angel investors themselves, right? Um, so, you know, that's one, that's one way, you know, we get a lot of deals. Um, also an advice to founders who are looking to raise in that, from that standpoint. The number two way would be co-investments. So that means that, um, or co-investors. So we don't, you know, we don't operate on signal. So what that means is that, like, I'm not going to go into a deal because this person is there or because this, you know, this other person is there, right? You know, it, it doesn't work like that. So we really invest in deals that we have a high conviction in internally. But we have a lot of really great um, investors, either they're angel investors or other VCs or syndicates, who we actively share deal flow together, right? So we share this with them and they share deals with us. Right, and that that's also a really good source of really great deals because in many of those cases, that investor has already invested in the company, or they can't invest, but they think you know they know what you like, or they know what we like in this instance, and they will be like, oh, these guys will potentially be a great fit for your thesis, right? Um, so that would be the second bucket I'll place it in. The third bucket would be um, just general ecosystem referrals. So, like, you know, just general folks just, like, reaching out and sharing stuff. Um, and then the first bucket would be inbounds, which would be, we actually get some really good deals by inbound. So, if you go on Magic's website, for instance, now, there's a simple link there where you just fill a simple form, and we'll get it, and our team will review it. And if we want to go forward, you know, we'll reach out to the founders. So, I would say, like, overall, these are some of the very first, four, these are some of the four buckets, you know, where we get deal flow. Um, but the first two are usually, they're not the highest quantity, but are usually of the highest quality. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. So some of the deals, I mean, that you've executed since you joined the, the firm, how long does it take for you to typically close or for the firm to typically close or make an investment decision? Because I work with some founders and it's really frustrating for them in terms of the process, the timeline. They're not even sure once they get into the door how long it's going to take the due diligence process yeah. and everything. Yeah, no, so, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, so what's the timeline? How does it typically work in terms of closing? Yeah, so, so it, I, would, I, I would say like this thing varies as well. Um, and, and this is, so I would, I would answer for what it looks like for Magic, but I also like to, you know, share some context that also help founders, you know, understand how to navigate this process when speaking with different VCs. Um, for magic, we move as quick as two weeks throughout the entire process sometimes, right? So it means, um, especially because, you know, really good deals probably have a lot of investors trying to get into that deal, <laughs> right? <laughs> so if you don't move fast, you're not just going to get an allocation, right? Um, we operate on high conviction. Also because, you know, at the earlier stages, we're backing the founder to a large extent because the product is going to change, Right. Um, so we have, you know, things we look out for. And when we find that this is a great founder that we want to back, that we think is going to build a monster of a company in the sector that they are focused on, right? Um, which usually means, so the process usually means that you speak with um, our partners. Sometimes you speak with one partner 
and then you have to then speak with you know other partners because the way magic is structured is we have different investment cohorts across the different regions and sectors that we invest in so that allows us to move much faster so everybody in magic so all you know 12 to 14 partners don't agree on each deal right they're split into smaller cohorts of two to four partners which is much more nimble right um so it means that one partner can bring in a deal speak with the founder at first and if they really like the company they then get their other investment cohort members to then jump on a call with that founder and usually after that second call the entire team would talk about it deeply and debrief and decide if they want to go forward or not, right? So at that point, we can usually communicate to the founder and say, we're really interested, but we need to do some more digging, right? So we need to do some more due diligence. We'd like you guys to send us your data room or whatever information you have, you know, to be able to help us look at this a bit more deeper. And we'll usually look at that more, uh, more deeply within, you know, two weeks or less, sometimes within a week. And once we have that clarification and that clarity, we will then proceed to write our investment memo internally, right? So write our investment memo internally, and then the the next step is just that memo getting approved, right? So it is after the memo is approved that we then let the founders know that, oh, we've gotten approval from the partnership that we'd like to invest, um, and the founders will send over their docs. When we receive, and like if the found, for instance, like if the found, if we communicate with the founder on a Monday that, you know, We've got an approval, send over your docs. If the founder sends over the documents that day, we'll typically wire, um, sign and wire, and they will have the funds in their bank account by Tuesday. Right? Um, so the, 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 what usually takes time sometimes is, number one, the scheduling. So if, if a partner meets with a company and, you know, scheduling is unable to happen quick enough, right, it means that, you know, that first stage of the process might take a bit longer, Right? Um, but then after the, the partners decide, another thing that also affects, you know, from a VC standpoint is, you know, if there's no eye conviction and the partners mm. need to do more digging, it then means that they need to spend more time on due diligence. Right. So they probably need to speak with a couple of references, speak with a couple of your existing investors or speak with, you know, similar companies that they know. So that's why it will take some more time. But in many cases, if there's eye conviction within two weeks, you know, from the first call, the entire process can be done. And, you know, within two weeks, the money's in the back accounts. So the gauge I usually use, you know, for people, especially with Magic, is usually between two to four weeks, right? There's a deal that um, we closed in February that we closed within one week, right? Um, yeah, so it, it varies um, depending on the context of the deal. Of the deal. And, and in the industry, uh, based on your work, uh, I mean, other VC firm, what, what, what's the range? I mean, it sounds like magic is, I mean, the process is quite fast. The two weeks, one week, I think that's amazing. Uh, but uh, across the industry, based on some of the folks that you work with, is there like a range that you can... Yeah, I'll say, some people, I'll say some people are faster. <laughs> <laughs> some people are faster, especially... So people that are faster are usually much smaller funds where they are smaller GPs. Oh. So if okay. there's only one or two GPs, right, um, it means that, you know, um, it's easier for that decision process to be made, right? Um, I would say that's one. Some people are also longer. People take longer in, like, so, like, just also so founders know. If you're going to be, inve- um, you know, getting a syndicate to invest, you should expect the process to take, you know, one to two months thereabouts because the syndicate needs to go and meet their members 
and you know get interest in the deal before they can confirm the amount they will invest to you mm-hmm. and then they need to set up the legal entity all of the members need to sign people they need to wire and that's just a lot of chasing down right mm-hmm. so it would be unfair to expect the syndicate to move in two weeks because you know it's just probably even operationally impossible right um, in some cases, some VCs are set up such that they have investment committees and they only meet on certain days. I know, you know, before it used to be once a month, you know, from a few that I know, but nowadays with the speed as which deals move, I think most VCs, you know, and investment committees meet every week or every two weeks now, right? Um, so what that means is that depending on the cadence of the investment committee of the VC, it just like if you speak at the VC today and they do meetings every two weeks, they will present your company at, you know, in two weeks' time. And the investment committee might ask them to get more information from you, right? And if they come back to get more information, they have to wait another two weeks. You another two me. weeks. So it's just yeah. like, it's, it's not as though they're not trying to move fast. It just means that sometimes the processes are set up that way. The other thing is if the partnership is large and everybody, and the fund is set up such that everybody deal, right? It then means that everybody needs to speak with the founder or get all of the information, and they need to get unanimous approval from everybody. So I think it just varies based off of the dynamics of either the fund or the dynamics of that specific deal. Um, but we're seeing from, um, people moving pretty fast. I would say like a good number of people usually also do four weeks, right? Four weeks is usually a good time frame. And in some cases, it extends to eight weeks. So I say anywhere between four weeks to eight weeks is you know, the average we see across the industry. But there are some people that move a lot faster than we do our magic. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think <clears throat> I think that's really good, right? Yeah, and uh, for the investments that you make, um, do you, do you lead most of those investments, and is taking a bot seat like priority for you? Yeah, so you know, Magic is a founders collective, and you know, the message we're trying to pass to founders is that we're in your corner, and we empathize with you, you know. We want you to be able to want to be the shoulder you come and you know cry on if something is going badly, right? Um, and what that often means is number one, it means that um, at certain ticket sizes you just cannot lead round. So mm. at ticket size that like we would do one fifty k to two fifty k, you know, except the round is a three hundred k, you know, round or a four hundred k round, you know, you don't lead the round. But also we're also not you know we're not trying to you know, you know, set it up that way. We are trying to be such that we're just going to put money in, right? But the larger, the most important thing that we're coming with is we want to be able to support you as a founder through this journey, right? So at the, the ticket sizes that we have allows us to then get into deals, you know, a lot faster as well because it means that it's not, there's not a big conversation about, oh, we only do $500,000 or $1 million and we have to lead the round, you know. It's much more easier, a much more easier conversation with the founders, right? So in many cases, we don't lead rounds. Um, we like to position ourselves as, you know, you know, just being there to be able to support the founder with, you know, figuring out everything. And when you're a lead for the round and they are more or less negotiating and leading terms, it becomes, the dynamic is a lot different, right? With regards to your question around board seats, the same thing applies. For most um, companies, we don't take bot seats, right? Um, but in a few cases, especially if, you know, um, the founders really like the partner, they usually ask them to become, you know, maybe board advisors and, you know, in a very few cases, bot seats. 
but across most of our portfolio, it's probably less than 1% of companies that would take, you know, board sitting. And this allows us to just be really flexible. We're not too big of a presence, you guess, but we are there for the founder when they need us. All right. Yeah. So now uh, let's assume an investment has been made, right? Uh, so what, what are like the reporting requirements? I mean, since you don't lead most of the deals, how, how does that work? You know, what are like the requirements reporting framework from startup after investment? Yeah. To Do be you honest, get that from the lead in most cases from lead investors? Yeah, no. So I think that the industry is also evolving, you know, back in the day, especially when I used to be at CCR, you know, we usually require startups to founders to send in monthly reports. Sometimes we even send them the templates that we want them to update us, right? Um, but what I've seen, especially globally, is that, you know, it's just different. Um, it's interesting that back in those days, um, founders used to struggle to send reports. Um, and, you know, a lot of the founders that we work with don't struggle to send reports. So it also, it also speaks to, you know, the experience of the founders a really good founder would want to send a report because a really good founder would want to know what the health of his business is. And the process of knowing what the health of your business is is just being very clear about the things that, you know, are important to keep your business moving in the direction you want it to move. And if you have that internally, there's no reason why you wouldn't share it with your investors and partners for them to support you. You get what I mean, right? Um, so I find that, you know, most founders, especially the really good founders, usually don't have that issue. Right. Um, so there's no, there's no, what's the way it's really structured nowadays is like we just want information rights. So whenever you're putting out information, we want to be able to get whatever that information is. But across the industry, what we see is at the earlier stages of the companies, the founders, so they're on the founder. So we don't say we want these reports by this time. No, it's usually a standard thing that the founders are already doing or they plan to do. So the founders will usually send in monthly reports in the early stages. That's what I'm saying. Like at the pre-seed stage, they will usually send in monthly reports. But as they get to the seed stage where, you know, there's a lot more things going on, founders will usually then switch to quarterly reports, right? Then, you know, when it's much, much bigger, right? When the companies are much more bigger, then it's much more, you know, every twice a year. Um, obviously, there will always be founders who don't send reports as well. Um, but the way we also think about that is that because we have a close relationship with the founders, because many of these founders were texting on WhatsApp, you know, no, we're not trying to, you know, do email. We're texting on WhatsApp. We're doing, we are calling WhatsApp calls, you know, at different times, the founders can reach us. So in a way, we already know what's going on as well. So if we want to know, if a company is not sending in a report and want to know what's happening with that company, the partner who's in charge of that relationship can jump on a call with the founder and, you know, they'll be able to get the information that they need. So I would say that the, the industry is evolving from being very stringent on reports to, you know, on helping the founder understand the importance of just keeping track. And if they do that, a really good founder would also share that information with their investors as well, because that's how, you, you know, make sure that the company does well. Great. Amazing. I mean, that reminds me of like, uh, I mean, one of the podcasts I had with Andrew, uh, CEO of Lenko, I, yeah. mean, I mean, his approach to to raise the first check was consistently send a report to yep. uh, to some to people that he looks he looks up to in the industry. Yep. He was sending consistently to Jason, and okay. I can't remember the other investor. And he was doing that consistently, and he was doing that without expecting a reply. Yeah, and 
someday just got a reply from Jason and they were able to close a deal. And yeah. I mean, he, he credited Raisin's first check based on the fact that he was constantly sharing feedback, giving feedback about his company even before he raised this check. So I absolutely connect to what you said. Yeah, no, yeah. That, and I just mean, a like, good founder will yeah. always know this is the right thing, you know, yeah. to, to do. To... I, I was just going to say that, you know, something I've also learned from also knowing founders who struggled with this is um, founders sometimes feel like, so founders don't send reports when they feel like there's no progress or when they feel like things are going bad, right? Because these investors are putting money and putting effort into supporting your company. So founders often, you know, it's the, the field disappointed and it's that disappointment that does not allow them to send reports, right? And I'll just like tell any founders listening to this and my opinion on this is that the reason why you have investors and people working with you is so that they can support you, right? If they, it's not about only sending good updates, like the work of investors is to support you figure out their hard times, right? But if you never share that with them, you would never be able to get that support, right? So you just, founders should always make it a consistent habit to share both highlights and lowlights. And if it's only lowlights, share the lowlights and someone will jump in and want to help you out. Amazing. All right. Uh, I mean, enough of all this VC talk. Let, let's yeah. go soft a bit, Francis. Okay. Yeah. So I read one of your posts on Substack. I mean, you sold all your stuff and you left Lagos to become a digital nomad. What inspired that? <laughs> yeah, that was that. It's, it's been, you know, a lot of people ask and a lot of people, you know, ask if I just, you know, up and left, you know, maybe like within a few days. Um, it was actually, you know, a couple of months in planning. Um, I think a couple of things inspired it. So um, I lost my eldest brother in Q, Q4 2020. 20, 20, yes, 2020. Right? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think he lived a really great life. And I'm sure you know, he's, he's really happy wherever he is right now. Um, but you know, especially like I'd lost people in my lifetime, but when you lose someone who is your blood and who's really close to you, it's a different perspective on life. You know, it helps you to fully understand. It brings the concept of life being short home, right? But not life being short from a standpoint of just doing now, but life being short from a standpoint of we have a few, like we have limited number of years on this earth. And in many cases, we don't ever get to explore beyond the things that we are aware of or the things that we were that were shown to us, right? So a lot of people, um, again, not always of their own fault, but a lot of people would always live within the sphere that you know they grew up in, and their understanding of the world, the myths, the have have will be based off of what they have experienced, but also what they have heard. Right. So the average Nigerian, just to use an example, if the average Nigerian was to, you know, talk about what they thought a Ghanaian, what a Ghanaian looked like or how a Ghanaian acted or what Ghana looked like, it's going to be based off of ESA or limited information that they've been exposed to. The same thing applies to what they think of Kenya and Kenyans. The same thing applies to what they think of Taiwanese and Taiwan. 
what they think of Indonesia and Indonesians, even if they think if that's if they think about Indonesians at all, right? Or what they think of people in Nepal, if they ever think of you know people in Nepal. Um, but for me, after like 2021 was a year where I you know reflected a lot more about my life and what I wanted to do with my life, right? And for me, the fact that we know so little about the world, we know so little about the people in the world. Like we go, like you're Ni- you're in Nigeria, but like Nigeria is just two hundred million people. We never even get to meet more than ten million people in Nigeria, right? Talkless <laughs> of close to eight billion people across the world in over two hundred countries with different cultures, different foods, different people, different landscapes. And for me, it was about I want to be able to explore as much of this world as possible. I want to be able to learn about as much of this world as possible where i can i want to do that by myself and not based off of yesterday so i've been in ghana for six weeks now um and the things i have learned about ghana is just incredible because to be honest i knew i don't i didn't i didn't know anything about ghana in the real sense of it i didn't know Mm. anything about ghana before coming here what i know about ghana is 95 percent more than the average nigerian knows about ghana right and for me, the perspective I wanted to take it from as well was I didn't want to be a... So that's why I call it myself a digital nomad and not a backpacker. So a backpacker would come somewhere and stay for one or two weeks and, you know, move on to the next place. And for me, because I want to learn about the world, I plan to live in these places for about three months, sometimes maybe even up to six months, right? Because that's way you get embedded in the culture. You know, you get embedded with the people, you get immersed with the food, you get in the mess with the way people do things and you get a much richer view of the people and their views of the world. Um, and because I'm very privileged, because I think it's a really privileged thing to do, I must say that, because I'm privileged to right now be in a role where I can work remotely from anywhere in the world, where I can also potentially afford, you know, even though I'm still poor, afford to be able to... <laughs> I'm still very poor. If anybody wants to bless me, you know, I can send my I can send my, my details. Any any currency so I can funny. accept. Uh, any currency I'll accept. Uh, <laughs> but but because I can, you know, afford to be able to, you know, go somewhere, you know, get monthly rent and survive, right? Not necessarily live a flash life, but just survive and live. Um, the question is why not? So I, I'm actually on a mission to get as many people, especially Africans, to do it because we don't do it enough. Little about the world. We are not, you know, there's this thing where curiosity is anti-black, right? And, and it's a thing and sometimes it vexes me, you know. We say um, it's only a white person who's going to go into a jungle or it's only a white person who would hear a sound in a house and we say, who is there, right? Or is, you, you know, there's, uh, there are some things that in many cases only people from the Western part of the world do. Right? But yeah. it's all tied to curiosity. And when you yeah. think about innovation at its core, innovation is a product of curiosity, right? And innovation is best when they... Like, if this dude, um, what's his name? The guy that, you know, um, Darwin. If Darwin never went to the um, Galapagos Islands and did that old tour, like, imagine if he sat where he was and he never went there and he died. <laughs> <laughs> right we wouldn't know all of the things that we know today so humans were built to explore that is why 
the early Af- the early humans on the continent uh, when the, when they were on the African continent. That is why they trekked miles to explore the rest of the world. They went to Asia. They went to the Americas. Right? Humans were built to explore. The human progress that we have today has been based off of that curiosity and exploration. And as we want and walk towards Africa becoming a superpower when it comes to being able to create our own innovation, it is really important for us to expose ourselves. So I'm just literally just trying to learn. That's, that's what this trip is about. Amazing. I mean, I mean, I hear you say a lot of things about curiosity and that just reminds me of my podcast that we have yep. <laughs> it does, it does it <laughs> i mean wow. it's an amazing thank you for sharing that i think i mean i think that's a lot of i mean beautiful stuff you, you talk about i mean i mean i mean we don't even really know ourselves i mean in nigeria for example yes. i yeah. think i met a lady from benway i mean i'm like what's her what name do she I- said Apev, I'm like Apev. Apev doesn't even sound Nigerian. Are you sure you are Nigerian? Yes. Can you imagine? Like, if you think about it, what do you know about Benway? Like, the yeah. only thing that comes to mind about Benway, I know Benway is like the food market of nations. Like, I know that like there are some plants that only grow in Benway, and there's a lot of agriculture happening in Benway. But I've never been to Benway, and I'm sure like there's just interesting things that are there that we don't even know. So for me, it's not really even about just traveling to other countries. It's about being curious about the world, wherever it is that we're at. So, like, I'll have to come back to Nigeria to get visas to go on the next next step of my trip. And when I'm coming back, I'm like, I'm not going to stay in Lagos, right? I'm going to go somewhere else. Like, it's not about being outside Nigeria for me now. It's about wherever it is that I am, I want to be curious about the world that I am in. Absolutely. I mean, thanks a lot, Francis, for sharing that. No worries. It's been an amazing conversation. So as we round up, is there any other thing you would like to share or talk about? Yeah, no, like um, I, uh, when I saw this, you know, when you share this question ahead of time, I, I made a note to just write like what I wanted to say. And for me, um, the past year and the past two years, as you know, you mentioned something about, you know, we don't know ourselves. And I know you were referring to, you know, ge- geographic context. Um, but in my case, a lot of what a lot of the work that I'm doing, especially with my personal blog now, is in trying to help myself, but also, you know, by extension, help other people focus on understanding themselves and understanding their minds and understanding their personal identity. I think we spend too much of our lives chasing success, chasing things that have been defined as a society as what we need to spend our lives doing you know getting a job buying a house getting married having kids um, we need to sit down and think for ourselves and say what do we really want with this life you know what do we really want to be able to achieve with this life not from a standpoint of you know what is your purpose or what you, you know what you want to know, be known for or what's your social status but it's what are the things that matter to you who are you internally you know um what are the things that you want to spend your time doing right and taking an active step to then start doing that just being a lot more self-aware we spend too much time in the motion of things that we never truly get to understand our inner self our inner selves we never truly get to understand you know how to take care of ourselves and now to be at rest internally because 
you know, I heard something recently and it says that explosion only happens when there is stability. If there is no stability, there cannot be explosion. Yeah. Um, and it, we spend a lot of our lives in unstable moments, constantly on the move, and we never get to stability. So I would just like say that everyone out there, beyond, you know, trying to business, and this is even peculiar for founders, because a lot of founders suffer, because it's a very lonely journey. From a mental standpoint, a lot of founders suffer, and even employees, right? Um, so as you build all of these things, it's important to understand that at the end of the day, it's still your life. And you're trying to live this life as much as you can. So what matters to you? You know, you can balance it and do it side by side. And you can operate from that point of stability. So that's all I have to say. Amazing. Thank you so much, Francis. It's been an honor to have you on Curious K Podcast. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you once Pleasure again for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, man absolutely thank you everyone for listening to this episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did i mean of course feel free to recommend this show to your friends and see you next time bye-bye thank you so much bye-bye man